0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peak, and welcome to episode 336 of HER, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, investing in women's health care. Uh-huh. Now, this is an interesting nuance and in a a new twist for us. So it's going to be a terrific show. And before we begin, just know that the episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to Smarty Pants Vitamins Dot .com and here's your first reminder to please click on to iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because I want to hear from you. Yep, the whole team here wants to hear your feedback is golden. All right. It's time for her. Her, the podcast The Naked Truth About Women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about her. So what the heck's going on out there in the wonderful world of women's health care? Everything. I mean, my gut is just absolutely flipping, exploding. Uh, and you meet the neatest people. Many of you know I have a Wall Street hat as well. And I look constantly at investments in women's health care and in... And, and, am very involved in this entire field speak to it all the time etc and I meet the coolest people like the person we're going to be talking to today who is dr. Jane van Dees now She is an expert in gender equity in the workplace, has established the Working Group on Gender in the Physician Workplace, a national network, which amasses data on gender-based disparities in healthcare and solutions. She's currently medical advisor to three, not one, but three technology-based, you get a little overachieving here, women's health startup companies, as well as co-founder of ob best practice. Oh my goodness gracious, and she speaks nationally on gender equity in medicine. Jane, welcome to the Herb Podcast.
1: Ah, uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here with all of you and your listeners.
0: Well, listen, man, I mean, tell us about your background as an OBGYN training the whole gig.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um, I trained at UCLA, Uh, in Los Angeles and I uh, Did private practice for about six years. I was at the University of Minnesota for a little bit and I left um, Full-scope OBGYN practice in 2013 to become what's called an OB hospitalist And so that means that I work solely now clinically in the hospital on labor and delivery. I also take care of gynecologic emergencies coming through the emergency room, things like ovarian torsion and ectopic pregnancy and the like, but for the most part, I spend the majority of my clinical life helping moms uh, deliver their babies. And I work a lot of nights now, uh, and so that leaves my days free to pursue a lot of other interests. So I have sort of been maximizing that 24-hour clock.
0: Well, you know, like, how in the heck did you pivot to um investing in technology and being the medical advisor to these technology-based um startup companies how did that happen i mean what well, you know when did you become a smarty pants like that um <laughs> because you know you come from medical training and, and yet, now you're really up to your ovaries in really smart investments and really exciting technology. Yeah. Talk to us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it actually happened on a rainy Sunday. I was, um, uh, my twins were playing, and I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw that a friend of mine had used an app. And had talked about it on Facebook. It was an app called Heal, which uh, brings a a doctor to your home, like a house call. And I thought that is just so fascinating. I love to 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 see people disrupting healthcare. Um, obviously, you know this providing a highly human touch in an environment in healthcare, which can feel uh, so uh, distanced from the care part of healthcare. I feel like um you know sometimes trying to get an appointment trying to get your prescriptions trying to see a specialist the idea that someone would come to your house i thought this is th- this is revolutionary obviously it's an old standard for medicine but oh hell yeah <laughs> yeah so i reached out to the founder which is dr renee dua and she's a nephrologist in actually the san fernando valley in los angeles and i was like hey do you need any OBGYNs? <laughs> I, wasn't ah, sure, I love know, it. I maybe love I could it. diagnose some vaginitis or UTI or something like that. And um, <laughs> she said, no, we're not looking to add any OBGYNs at the moment, but I'll keep you in mind. And next thing I know, she had connected me to a founder, um, uh, Lauren Schulte at Flex, which is a uh, a uh, menstrual product company, and at the time, uh, Lauren and her partner Panpan Pan had just uh, come out of Y Combinator, and they had this idea to disrupt the the period space with a menstrual product that had been manufactured, um, the Instead uh, Soft Disc, and so um, they had uh, purchased the uh, the rights to the device from Evil Femme, and they wanted to to rebrand. Menstrual period products, uh, starting with the disc, and obviously they eventually added the cup as well. And so that was really my first foray into working with um, uh, a startup, and I absolutely fell in love. I love the idea of sort of uh, democratizing the the idea of talking about all aspects of period care, menstruation, getting you know industry insights. Now, as a doctor, you know that sometimes there can be these unnecessary barriers between the types of innovations that industry is doing and 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 allowing doctors and patients to hear about those innovations. And while I absolutely think that, you know, there can be, there are great examples of sort of predatory environments um, where, you know, obviously we only have to turn on the TV to see like a slew of of, of direct to consumer advertising for pharma. Um, but I, I, think there is a happy medium. I think there's a happy medium where doctors can learn about innovations in healthcare, um, and, and have it not be, um, and have it not be predatory or have it not feel like it's always like a sell. more like it's like finding out about what engineers and designers and and people that are are imagining new ways to solve problems in healthcare are reaching out and sharing that information. Um, And so that was really, really exciting to me. I absolutely love working on product roadmaps. I love thinking through with founders and product teams about what is what has not been talked about in women's health and how to potentially uh, disrupt it? You know, um, I just had a great conversation with Flex yesterday about uh, another area of women's health that they could potentially disrupt. Um, so, so I, I think you know, there's a, there's many aspects in women's health, especially that you know they are rocks. They're sitting in the ground. They haven't been picked up and and looked underneath. We haven't thought about new ways to solve old problems. But thank goodness there are innovators who are doing that, and thank goodness there are doctors like you and me who are here to do some of that translation and really uh, help guide. So that number one, obviously, we stay scientific, right? We don't want to uh, participate in with companies that potentially are, you know, a little bit of charlatan sales. You know, they're they're not really selling anything to women that's actually helpful um you know because there is some of that out there but actually innovating in ways that are based in science based in evidence and that you know have the ability to prove that they actually are improving women's lives what do you think
0: i love it i love it and the other piece that i was i was thinking about i was having like flashbacks here (laughs) um to seriously um to the fact that Uh, Isn't it cool that women are developing this, that women are investing, women are innovating, women are creating. Um, It's like, excuse me, uh, (laughs) instead of having to, you know, do a lot of making stuff up, which is what a man would have to do to really fully understand a woman's experience. um, And it usually doesn't end well. Um, I was laughing because I've done a lot of work with Under Armour, you know, with my work with fitness. um, And what was fascinating was years ago, when Under Armour was really getting going, it was almost all men there. They were were the ones who were creating the new clothes for men, women, you know, back and forth. And uh, then they started putting out sport bras. And I was... (laughs) I was fascinated. I said, "Send me the bras, you know, because I'm using them on TV and this and that." And and they were they were like putting a jock strap on my uh, chest. It was hor- oh no, it was oh, the worst. No. I said, "Dude, who who came up with this?" And they go, "Well, you know, like John Smith in the back room." I'm like, "Dude." seriously I'm a woman where the hell are the women creating these things Uh, aren't you getting a little feedback from them novel idea Um, and uh, that's when after you know a a, a mountain of complaints about this they did something really smart and hired their first uh, senior VP a woman to head up that entire division it was like please and so when it comes to women's health come on now you know We need to be able to be represented by women who are really great advocates and messengers for what we need. First of all, what are these needs? And the second thing is, who's creating these and how are we helping facilitate that? Now, don't you also have a a woman's um, health collaborative uh, that you're a founding member of, of, which is a national nonprofit seeking to empower women from diverse backgrounds to succeed and become leaders in science and medicine in all things women's health. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this this was an interesting uh, origin story. So this was a group of women on Twitter and we weren't connected but a bunch of us happened to see that there was going to be a panel uh sponsored by a very large nonprofit organization and the the topic was the you know the future of pregnancy uh pregnancy research and pregnancy care maternity care you know they had pulled together experts but you know lo and behold (laughs) they had a mantle they had a mantle going on and a oh,
0: mantle, not a <laughs>
1: It wasn't a panel. It was a man oh, love it. and And furthermore, not only was the composition of all the speakers, uh, I, there might have been one woman, but it was for the most part male. The topics were also uh, what I would say very brocentric. and and what i'm what I'm saying there is that I, I, I do feel like sometimes uh, people in healthcare, whether it's on the research side or or the clinical side, um, can sometimes miss the forest for the trees and and what we saw with this conference was that you know there was a lot of emphasis on tech there was a lot of emphasis on on genetics not to say that genetics isn't a key component in personalized medicine and health care but there were no clinical sort of applications and discussions on the panel about women's pregnancy care maternity care in the next 10 years um, and there were no uh, there were no sessions talking about equity and as we know in America we in the u.s lag so far behind our um, parallel economies and and European cohorts in terms of maternal mortality and access to care so it you know it I, I think that sometimes in science um, you know we can get so excited about um, new technological applications or or new algorithms AI all of that I'm not saying that it's not good what I'm saying is is that when you have as much adverse outcomes in maternity care as you do in the U S it's an elephant in the room not to address why Black and Brown women are dying in pregnancy uh, due to multifactorial reasons in in maternity care they include environmental racism they include uh food deserts where where women don't have access to quality Uh, fruits and vegetables. They include uh, the lack of health infrastructure and and states, as you know, that that haven't expanded the ACA and um, have meager Medicaid uh, benefits. You know, 50% of births in the U.S. are Medicaid and have meager benefits for women in pregnancy. And those benefits get cut off, you know, right after the birth of the child. So, you know just a plethora of manner by which we have a very inequitable health care system as regards maternal care and because of that we see these these outcomes data that are just sickening we should be embarrassed and ashamed that in new york city you know the the maternal mortality rate for black women is 12 times that for white women um and across the u.s you know that that black and brown women are more two to three times more likely to die in pregnancy that is you know i mean great that we have advances in Genomics and and AI-driven algorithms to improve maternity care, but we are missing the boat when it comes to providing equitable care. And so the idea that you would have this panel, this bro panel, this tech-heavy, and and you're just there were there were no women, there were no women of color, and it, it was just such a glaring reminder that we we have to. Uh, we have to have equity in everything we do in healthcare. Otherwise, we leave huge portions of the population behind.
0: Uh, just amazing. Did you, what was your aha moment with regard to your interest in diversity? I mean, I can only imagine, but I mean, did you have like a, you know, something hit you in the head and you went, oh my God, you know, I've, I've got to take this path and, and really, you know, crush it on diversity. What happened? Well,
1: you know, I, I I'm a white woman, so I I grew up with a lot of privilege, and I didn't see inequity like I you know like I do today. You know what what happened was is that I had um, I was sexually harassed in the workplace, and because of that, um, I came out of that experience knowing that I had to create something so that um, my daughter or anyone's daughter going into healthcare, uh, be it as a nurse, as a doctor, as a PA, as a tech, as environmental service person, you know, so that they didn't have to experience as much uh, harassment and discrimination, as currently exists in healthcare. Um, so, to that end, I met up with Dr. Esther Chu, who's a professor of emergency medicine at OHSU, and we created a tool designed to measure equity in healthcare. Um, our our business is called Equity Quotient or EQmedicine.com, and you know. As a white woman, my my journey has been long, and I'll be honest with you, it continues every day. It involves active engagement with anti racism, such that I am constantly learning about, um, you know, how healthcare shows up in discriminatory and and harassing uh, profiles. You know, we saw an article today in the ACOG uh, news, the American College of OBGYN, saying uh, a, a study I think was published in JAMA. Um, showing you know that that black patients were less likely to receive a pain medication this is something that we know um, but you know it was reported again and and we we constantly you know I think the problem that the US has and, and maybe other countries around the world as well is that you know we have these aha moments when we're like whoa you know this is wrong how do we fix it and we we think about kind of, you know, simple fixes, right? Like, um, obviously, last summer we saw a lot of statements. That's not going to fix the problem. Um, uh, but what we really need to do is to change the system. And I, I see this in digital health and health tech as much as I see it in brick and mortar healthcare. And that is that, you know, we have to measure what we are doing. And, and actually quantify and objectify the data. You know, statements and feelings and attestations and and opinion pieces and editorials, That those are not enough. We have to actually measure how inequity shows up in healthcare. So, you know, that means doing really great research. It means looking at outcomes data. It means looking at, you know, even simple studies like uh, you, you know, you're you're in a committee, you're in a, a working group, and there's twelve people around the table. and And I love these studies where they they measure like how long women actually talk, how long people of color talk how long white men talk and what you find is that the structures of inequity always show up the same way whether it's at a panel whether it's in a committee meeting whether it's in leadership whether it's in the c-suite and and so we actually have to take every opportunity we can to think about okay how do we how do we dismantle this structural inequity in order to make the the playing field uh, more equitable in order that we hear from voices that maybe don't feel like they can speak up. You know, I, I saw someone on Twitter the other day and she said, you know, when I take your workplace survey and I'm the only black woman in the group, like, how can I answer honestly? Right. Like you know, we ask people to show up, but we don't create safe spaces for them to show up in as their true and authentic selves. So I, I I think that you know wherever and whenever we have the opportunity to ask the question, how is systemic inequity and racism and gender discrimination showing up here in this room? How do we dismantle it?
0: I love it. Whoa, whoa! I'm just you know like my hair is blown back. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like oh my god, you know she just sort of totally blew me away here, um, and and I love it because what you're really speaking to is just come on people wake up, you know we we need we need to do a lot of change and what I'm loving here is you're also talking with money and with funds and with um, financial support for uh, companies which I think is wonderful. There are more and more of these companies. Uh, that are venture capital and private equity and others that are woman-led and they're really woman-centric and also include uh, a nod definitely to the whole issue of diversity as well it seems as though there's a changing tide do you think this is real and meaningful chain
1: well i actually do i do having said that it does require the everyday work um it, it does require that we don't turn our backs right At Equity Quotient, one of the things that we do is, you know, we say, um, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure. You can't change what you aren't. Evaluating. Um, and so for instance, this morning we had a discussion. I, I'm assistant professor at the University of Rochester. We had a department meeting, and, and we, we were gonna have a session because we're gonna go into letter writing for, um, for residents and fellows and medical students, right? For for their next step in their career and i think as a department we all recognize that we bring our biases to our letter recommendations right i love the application uh there are a couple places on the internet you can find where you can basically you can put the letter of recommendation that you're going to write for a student or a learner and you can put it into the um and put it put it into this uh website and then the website will tell you how biased your letter is based on the language that you're using. Um, uh, oh, my you know, god. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. You know, uh, Anupam Jenna at, at Harvard, he's one of our advisors at Equity Quotient, and he does a lot of fascinating research on gender. But he did this study where he looked at over 6 million life sciences papers and what he did was he correlated the gender of the authors with the superlatives the authors used to describe their research. And what he found was is that men typically use more superlatives like outstanding, excellent, innovative, uh, best in class. You know, They use more superlatives when describing their own work than do women. Um, You know, we see this in in males, uh, how they evaluate themselves. They tend to, uh, you know, they tend to apply for jobs when they're 65 percent qualified, whereas women apply for jobs when they're 120 percent qualified. Right. And so and so what you see then. Is that when you use those superlatives though to describe yourself or your or your body of work, that it ends up mattering. You end up getting cited more, it ends up affecting your career, you get promoted more, you make more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's it's fascinating and important that we, you know, take a step back and realize like, well, what kind of gender and racial bias is going into words that we haven't even thought about because it's unconscious. And so we use this digital app to sort of tell us, like, okay, so how are we building bias in? And so then, once we know that, then we can dissect it and make sure that we take the bias out. But it's it's so fascinating. You know, you're talking about um, venture, at, and I love you know. I love hearing these stories. I don't love it because it makes me angry, but I I love hearing examples where you know, for instance, Lauren uh, Schulte at Flex or Kate Ryder, uh, the CEO that I worked with at Maven Clinic, you know, talking about going into the ecosystem of venture and making a case for either period products or women's healthcare, and getting reactions from you know panels mostly of men sometimes where, you know... No,
0: mantles. Mantles, mantles. exactly.
1: And and what they'll say is, they'll say like, um, well, you know, women need more options than tampons and pads. Like, you know, isn't that enough? Or like, aren't you guys satisfied? Or even better, I heard on a, a, a clubhouse the other day, you know, this, this woman who worked at the Innovations uh, for Nike, she was pitching some, you know, this is up your alley, some uh, athletic postpartum athletic wear for women who had just had a baby and you know and the VC was like well my wife had a baby and she didn't need anything like that and
0: Ooh, <laughs> it's sort of like oh you know, and, you know, no and it's, no it's he just, did not he
1: did but it's just this <laughs> sense that if you know one woman you know all women right
0: Oh yeah, We have yeah, to change yeah. our
1: ecosystems, right? Because when you have VCs that are eighty or eighty-five percent male, um, yeah, it's going to take a lot of convincing that women's health matters, that women's products matter, that the way women interact with uh, their lives, you know, matters, and how do we, you know, is it going to get funded? Like. If his wife or his daughter didn't need it, then you know why should he f- help? You know fund this this startup. And so you know there's a lot, a lot of work to be done.
0: Well, it, there's no question, and I'm going to segue right off that um, into the wonderful world of menopause. <laughs> Um, because, yes. uh, oh my God! Uh, talk about bad rap and and funky stereotype. <laughs> uh, just right. like, oh yeah, let's let's talk about a real downer, you know, topic: menopause. It's like, wait a minute, dude! Just a minute now. Hold on to your bra straps, everyone out there. Just listen up, okay? A woman spends at least a third of her life in a perimenopausal menopausal place. You better hope you're having a damn good time. <laughs> And, yeah, and it's yeah. not it's not like an overnight thing i swear to god i think some some guides think it's like okay well she she had a menopausal moment yesterday and it's done no 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 it could be a 20-year journey of all kinds of funkiness and and trying to explain that to a guy um is just unfreaking believable i I'm actually overseeing a prostate cancer uh, trial because uh, the work I'm doing involves um, an intervention that will help with the hot flashes that men get when they have um, the prostate cancer uh, treatment, uh, same as the uh, hot flashes that women get either naturally or or cancer treatment uh, initiated. And what's really interesting is that, you know, when, when I'm looking at this kind of thing, we can't seem to get anyone interested in women's hot flashes. It's like, it's a thing, right? Most women suffer in silence and they're not making a big deal about it unless their husband says you're all flushed and sweating like there's no tomorrow and it's in the dead of winter. So what's up with that? And and so you try to you know go out there and drum up a lot of interest on the part of everyone um, for something like that. And they're like, mm, maybe not so much. And then men get prostate cancer and and have hot flashes and everybody wants to know how to help them um it's it's a thing it suddenly becomes a thing and i just have to smile it's like if that's the foot in the door then that's the foot in the door it's funny well
1: i mean i have to say i have to say funny story here you know so i was i was in training when uh when viagra came out on the market and i'll be honest with you i remember the pfizer reps this is before the drug reps you know weren't as uh, weren't as widely invited into the doctor's offices and the like. That was a nice way to put it. (laughs) And they were, you know, they came with a, 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 you know, backpacks and carts full of um, little blue, you know, snuggies and, and pens and paper and, you know, just tchotchkes galore branded with the Viagra blue
0: swag, Viagra swag.
1: swag. And, and, (laughs) and, you know, it didn't occur to me then it didn't occur to me then, but I was on a panel at the NIH uh, this spring and I said, you know, who did, who did Pfizer think these men were going to have sex with? Right. Like like the Viagra, for the most part, is is aimed at a population, you know, in their 50s and 60s. Right. And, and obviously not everyone, but majority. Um, and, and those are the women who have gone or are going through menopause. And and nobody thought to ask whether or not they were enjoying sex. Nobody thought to ask like, is it how's how's the vagina like? It, it you know it, it tends to get de-estrogenized after menopause. Some women need some estrogen. Some women need. uh support for other aspects of menopause nobody thought to ask who the heck are these men going to have sex with and and i thought you know it's just absolutely so indicative of of the patriarchy that we live in that that nobody thought to ask that question am i right
0: I, I just love it. I'm just sitting here uh, smiling my ass off, Jane, because it's so true, and it just cracks me up. I, I got a, I got a quick question for you here. You're also um, the co-administrator of a, of a very popular Facebook group, um, and this includes almost, I guess maybe even by now, 5,000... OBGYN's the actual doctors themselves and it's yeah, called yeah. OB OB Mom Group. What do you guys yeah. talk about all day? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh I, my I, god. I, god. We talk about everything. We talk about everything. So we you know, we talk about um We talk about clinical cases you know someone uh posted this morning about a case that was really challenging for them and challenging for everyone in their local medical community you know uh so sometimes people will ask a clinical question of course de-identified no no hipaa violations or anything like that but they'll ask for help right because you know maybe you know you see this all the time, you know, we, not every resident in OBGYN gets sufficient menopausal training, right? And so they'll, they'll sometimes want to know like, hey, menopausal experts on OB mom group, what do I do for, for a patient who's suffering with this or a complex contraception problem or a complex pregnancy problem? So we have all of these sort of clinical expertise and we get to know each other right so if you see a question and you know that we have uh an rei or a euro guide or or family planning person that specializes in that you know you tag them and then they'll pop in and 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 provide some expertise and you're like that is the cheapest most effective curbside consult curbside you know, <laughs> baby curbside that, yes exactly <laughs> um but we also you know we're also there to support each other you know one of our members came down with uh stage four colon cancer last year we raised sixty thousand dollars for her in like a weekend a weekend we are there to support you know working moms because uh you know there are challenges to being a surgeon and you know oftentimes bearing a, an overwhelming share of domestic responsibilities as well so we're here to like hold hands when you miss the um, event at school because your calendar is so full and your kids like kind of sad or mad at you and we're like we, we you know we're there to hold your hand um, you know people go through divorces they they lose loved ones and it's just an absolute community to, to stand by you through all the types of things that women surgeons and OBGYN experience in their lives.
0: Damn, I love it. I mean, I just—we need more of that. And you know, there are sort of some subcommunities around, um, you know, Twitter as MedTwitter and women in medicine and blah 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 and the rest of it. But I just love this. I—I'm I, sure it makes people feel good. Um, I'm, and I can only imagine um that the grand majority of women out there or ob you know per se whatever you know really uh love the support the feeling that there's support somebody gets it with their experience um and that's why i just was going to give you a major shout out for getting involved in that i think it's just amazing absolutely amazing so okay what you know as we're closing this little hummer down Okay, because this has been a wide-ranging podcast to say the least. You know, Jane, what would you say out there as 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 parting words of wisdom to all of our you know uh, listening audience, um, which is a diverse crowd of women, uh, for all intent and purposes, about advocating for themselves, about you know. Being able to stand up for themselves and to be able to help guide themselves in this crazy medical care world.
1: Yeah, I think you know this is such a great question, but it's also I feel like a multifactorial question, right? Which is to say, you know, how do you how do you advocate for yourselves? How do you know who's an expert, right? Um, and I, I feel like the interview the internet is at once an amazing resource, but also can be a very confounding or confusing one. You know, I, I guess what, what I would say is, you know, like you would probably say, there are some trusted sources out there for information. Um, you know, I, I you know, whether, whether it's like the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic—you know—some of these bigger organizations put out good overall uh, synopses of common conditions, whether it's incontinence or endometriosis, or what does this AMH level mean, or I'm spe- experiencing these symptoms—is this perimenopause? And that, you know, there are trusted sources, and I would say, you know, my first piece of advice is to lean on trusted sources when you start going to sources whose um, citations or experts, you know, are things you people and and places you've never heard about. That's where I think, you know, patients get into trouble because I think that there are companies out there who are predatory is the is the name of the game, who are selling ideas or a product that don't have any scientific evidence behind them and and they're taking your hard earned money and and you may not be getting, you know, Uh, You may not be getting a good solution to your problem. I mean, a perfect example in the menopause space, of course, is uh, the term bioidentical hormone. Now, we know, those of us who've been practitioners here know that that was actually a marketing term. It's not a scientific term. Having said that... um, Some practitioners do use that term to describe hormones that are FDA approved to treat the menopause. Uh, But some practitioners or some companies will use that term to describe products that aren't FDA approved, right? And so that means that when we do studies on those products, we find that sometimes the products are super therapeutic. They have more of the drug in question than you want, and sometimes they're sub-therapeutic, so they don't have enough of the drug that you want, but because they're not regulated by the FDA, you, the consumer, are, are potentially being put in harm's way. And, you know, I think that's what's really hard for the consumer is to know, you know, who to trust, you know, whether a company is reputable, that sort of thing. I'm really liking, you know, Dr. Jennifer Gunter is writing the Vagenda, which is a substack um, where she she writes about a topic in women's health and kind of breaks it down. She obviously is very scientific based. She, you know, everything she she writes about, she has citations for. Um, so, you know, she, to me, she's a, a trusted expert. She obviously has the vagina Bible that she wrote. She just came out with the menopause manifesto and and there are others but you know what i would say is you know your friend who heard from a friend that some product you know worked uh, that that could be safe or it might not be safe you know it's, it's it's really hard hard to tell so what i would say is number 1 you know check your sources you know make sure that there's science behind it um, and you know if you if you talk to your doctor and you feel like maybe they aren't as informed about your specific condition as they need to be, you know, it's totally okay to ask for a second opinion. Um, and, you know, your listeners can always reach out to me. I, I know 5,300 OBGYNs, so I'm always happy to provide second opinions.
0: You are so funny. And how? what is the best way for people to uh, keep up on all things uh, Dr. Jane Van Dees? Really,
1: you know, I'll be I'll be honest, my two social media platforms are Twitter and and LinkedIn. So, I'm I'm kind of I I push more uh, business-minded stuff over to LinkedIn. And, and pushing more personal opinions uh, onto Twitter. But I, I spend quite a bit of time on, on Twitter every day. Do you?
0: Oh, absolutely. I just checked out your Twitter. You and I follow each other. We stalk each other. I looked <laughs> at, your, at your pinned tweet and I almost choked. I was laughing so hard. It, it's all about the fact that, you know, men have been telling women what to wear for a long time. And back in 1933, you know, the bustles and the strange dresses and the weird stuff that, you know, corsets and gossip. God knows what else, but today in the Olympics, hello, and this has been all over the news. Yeah. All right. So yes. um, I'm a volleyball person. I was born and raised in in California. I'm five foot nine. Hello, you know I know how to spike those babies, and so um, I I stay up right. on that. And and it's like, why do the women by regulation have to wear bikinis, but men are wearing T-shirts and shorts? Now help us understand that for a minute. what what, what's going on with that and wasn't there a team that uh went ahead and just wore you know uh shorts and t-shirts and they got somehow penalized yeah yeah it was the norwegian
1: it was the norwegian handball team yeah yeah you know i i i posted about this and i said you know this actually isn't about it 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 actually isn't about what we're wearing it's about power and gender right that's right You know, (laughs) I think sometimes, you know, it's people get confused about sexual harassment. It's not about sex, it's about power. You know, whenever we have those questions, ask yourself, Is it about power or money? Because chances are it's about power and money.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, the same things are going on in gymnastics in those godforsaken outfits they wear, where, I mean, seriously, nothing is left to the imagination. And, you know, some of the teams are wearing longer, you know, uh, kind of uh, legging kind of um, outfits now instead of the other stuff. I personally, not being... Not being a gym gymnast, um, and thank you, Jesus, for that. You know, I don't know what the experience is with or without all that legging stuff, but it you know, it just speaks to the same damn thing. So anyway, her Twitter feed, everyone out there, <laughs> damn it, is um and it's all lowercase Jane, J A N E V A N for Van and D isn't dog, I S in Sam uh for D S. And and just follow it. It's a trip and a half, and you gotta do it. And here's the last thing our little friend Jen Gunter is gonna be on my podcast as well and so yeah man so like I'm getting into it here got to do it so I would really you you know between yours and hers and you know let's get some voices in there where people can really uh, look toward um, resources that make sense to them and that are credible. So that's good. So, Jane, I cannot thank you enough Aww, for being on the, the podcast, man. The And, and you know, you're going to have to become a repeat offender and you're going to have to come back and we're going to be doing this again and again when issues come up, because you have a really great articulate voice. And I can guarantee you, honey, that when you're in a room um, and, and there's like a board meeting going on, there is no doubt your voice is being heard. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and you could just forget that the other little survey about women sitting back and going, oh, my God. Um, no, that's not you. And, and newsflash, that ain't me either. So right, right, there you right, have right. it. Jane, thank you so much for being on the herb podcast. Thank you. Can't wait to come back. All right, and everyone out there, run on over to iTunes, rate and review the show, because I want to hear from you. Why? Because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at PamPeekMD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today. Hey, listen, stay safe and stay well.